In a man-to-man fight, the winner is he who has one more round in his magazine. Erwin Rommel, 1937. It was a place few expected to be fighting in when war broke out in 1939. It was a conflict Hitler never wanted. It was a fight on terrain that at times was as hostile as the enemy. It was a battlefield that relied on chariots of steel and wings of vengeance, and one that could only be won through cunning, ruthlessness, and above all, an effective supply chain. For many, the battle for control of North Africa is seen as something of a sideshow to the war in Europe, but this conceals the truth that if North Africa had fallen to the Axis powers of Nazi Germany and fascist Italy, then the whole course of the war could have been completely changed. In today's episode, we're going to explore the events surrounding the most pivotal battles for control of North Africa, the battles for El Alamein in Egypt, and examine the cost of both success and failure to both sides. On July 10th, 1940, as France was crumbling under the German Blitzkrieg, fascist Italian dictator Benito Mussolini felt the time to be right for him to wade into the fight alongside Hitler in a pact of steel and try to claim some of the glory of defeating France and then Britain. Ultimately, Italian forces played only a token role in the fighting in Western Europe in 1940, just enough for Mussolini to at least win favor with Hitler but entering the war against two of the world's premier imperial powers, who were now on the ropes thanks to Germany, did afford the Italian dictator an opportunity he desperately craved. Mussolini dreamed of a new Roman Empire, with him as the architect of its creation. To do this, he needed to expand Italian possessions in North Africa, already claiming Abyssinia, modern-day Ethiopia, in 1935, an act which almost ignited war in Europe four years before Hitler invaded Poland. Italy held Libya, while to the east was British Egypt and the highly prized Suez Canal. Taking Egypt from the British, who were more preoccupied with defending their own homeland from a German invasion than trying to stop him, would allow Mussolini to control access to the Middle East and their vital oil supplies, and thus afford him great influence on the world stage. Mussolini mustered an overwhelming force to take Egypt beginning on September 13, 1940, with over half a million men predominantly attacking from Libya, but with a substantial number of them attacking from Abyssinia in the south. So confident was he of victory, and not wanting to share the glory with Hitler, Mussolini refused an offer from the Führer of German armoured units to support the campaign. The only things standing in their way were a measly force of around 50,000 British and Commonwealth troops from Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, and India. What happened next has become legend. Outnumbered 10 to 1, even with the arrival of reinforcements from the UK after the Battle of Britain was won, the British, under General Archibald Wavell, not only rebuffed the Italian advance, but completely collapsed their lines. 
Thousands of Italians were taken prisoner, having in some cases been caught totally off guard by the British counterattack on December 7th, but key to British victory was its superiority in tank forces. By the beginning of February 1941, British forces had almost completely routed the Italians and were now driving across northern Libya to capture the capital city, something that would give the British naval bases and airfields across the southern Mediterranean with which to continue the war against Italy and Germany. Wavell's men had also struck south into Abyssinia and Italian Somaliland with similar success. However, the British advance ground down as Churchill, confident of victory, began redeploying his North African forces to participate in the ultimately disastrous Greek campaign. Yet, despite this, the Italians seemed totally inept, and so Mussolini was forced to swallow his pride and turn to Hitler for support. On February 6, 1941, German General Erwin Rommel was informed that he was to take command of two understrength divisions, the 5th Light and the 15th Panzer, and that he would be sent to North Africa to help prop up the Italians. Rommel had already proven himself a superb leader in both the Polish and French campaigns, with a keen insight into modern armoured warfare. However, he was also something of a rogue amongst the general's staff. In France, he had at times been accused of leading his troops recklessly by the more traditionalist officers of the Wehrmacht as he seized opportunities as they presented themselves. He was also no stranger to getting up close to the enemy, even if one were to exclude his wartime experiences in the trenches of World War I, often conducting personal inspections of his front line to gain first-hand knowledge of what was happening. Charismatic, and with numerous victories under his belt, he was well-liked by his men, but more importantly, by Hitler, the Fuhrer seeing him as the image of the heroic Germanic leader worthy of legends. There was, therefore, probably more than one German general who saw shipping him off to Africa on a fool's errand to help the Italians as a convenient way to get him out of the inner circle. The new force, dubbed the Africa Corps, was anything but an elite outfit in 1941. Its two divisions were a hodgepodge of units and equipment, with the 15th Panzer still getting used to armoured warfare, having only recently converted from an infantry division. To compound these problems, Hitler was little interested in North Africa and was predominantly focused on his plans for a summer invasion of the Soviet Union. In fact, his orders initially focused simply on reclaiming lost Italian territory in Libya, Mussolini being promised support for a re-invasion of Egypt in 1942, by which time Hitler had expected to have defeated Stalin's Red Army. It was against this less-than-ideal backdrop that Rommel would rise to the occasion, proving a master and making a little go a long way, surprising everyone, even Hitler, by chasing the Allies back to the Egyptian border by April of 1941, forcing the Fuhrer to divert additional resources to North Africa and push forward the planned invasion of Egypt. The British and Commonwealth troops who had enjoyed such superiority against an enemy many times their own size now found themselves in the reverse position. Retreating back across Libya, they were unable to resist Rommel's desert blitzkrieg, and recognizing that it was his bold tactics that were winning the day, the Allied troops afforded Rommel the title of the Desert Fox. However, Rommel did not have it all his own way. At Tobruk, a force consisting primarily of members of the 9th Australian Division, led by Lieutenant General Leslie Morshed, refused to surrender the vital port city. 
Rommel attempted to dislodge them, but the Australians stubbornly held on, and not wanting to be distracted further, he was instead forced to divert some of his units to lay siege to them, hoping to starve them out. Wavell made two significant attempts to lift the siege, each failing in their objective, but it did succeed in distracting Rommel, slowing his push east. He was also forced to settle for using inferior Italian equipment as replacements for the German tanks and aircraft damaged in combat, but without a doubt, his biggest headache was the lack of fuel reaching his units from either German or Italian stocks across the Mediterranean. Time and time again, he found his requests for more rebuffed as the Eastern Front took priority for almost everything, leading to his advance stalling on more than one occasion. A temporary solution was to capture enemy stocks, but knowing this, the Commonwealth troops made every effort to set fire to even the tiniest drop of fuel if it appeared that it would be captured. Yet despite all of this, he continued to outfight British Commonwealth forces, leading many Allied troops to almost deify him as some kind of unstoppable desert war god. This obviously had a major impact on Allied morale, but there seemed to be no Allied leader who could match Rommel's sheer presence on the battlefield. At least, not yet. In London, Prime Minister Winston Churchill couldn't fathom how the situation was deteriorating so badly. Churchill knew that if Egypt fell, Britain would lose access to the Suez Canal and be starved out of the vital oil reserves of the Middle East and the support of its empire and colonies in the East. Ultimately, he decided that Wavell was simply not up to the task, and so in July of 1941, replaced him with the former commander-in-chief in India, General Sir Claude Auchinleck, who had won Churchill's favour with a swift putting down of an Iraqi uprising earlier that year. During his time in command, Auchinleck, who became known as the Orc to his men, was able to rebuff Rommel on more than one occasion and was even able to lift the siege of Tobruk with Operation Crusader, allowing the Australians to leave before Rommel finally seized the port city. However, Rommel persisted in pushing east, despite advice from Berlin to simply hold Libya, the supplies simply not existing to fully support the war in the Soviet Union and an all-out offensive in Egypt. Not wanting to lose the momentum he had achieved, Rommel once again ignored this advice, and for the remainder of 1941 and early 1942, the battle lines fluctuated back and forth, until eventually, by June, Rommel made it to within 90 miles of the vital port city of Alexandria, after which lay Cairo and Suez. Following the German victory at Gazala on June 21st, commander of the British 8th Army, Lieutenant General Neil Ritchie, ordered his men to fall back some 100 miles from the border with Libya. The 8th Army was formed out of the forces committed to the theatre in November of 1941, and despite being a British Army formation, it also comprised of units from several British, Imperial, Commonwealth, and Allied nations. Perhaps its most celebrated unit was the 7th Armoured Division, which had earned the nickname the Desert Rats for its exploits. At Mursa Matra, Ritchie organized his men into a posture that centered around creating defensive boxes of troops backed up by tanks and artillery, with the gaps between each filled by minefields. Looking at Ritchie's posture, Auchinleck believed he had the right idea, but was implementing it in the wrong place. Auchinleck knew Rommel liked to outflank his enemies, and the position at Mursa Matra left the 8th Army exposed in the south. 
The two disagreed, but believing he was right, on June 24th, Orkinlek relieved Ritchie and took personal command of the 8th Army, ordering them to retreat still further east into Egypt. Looking at the map, he instead chose to make his stand near a rather insignificant railway station named El Alamein that sat on the east-west railway line to the port city of Alexandria. His new front line stretched some 40 miles from the Mediterranean coast. Southwards, the Katara Depression, a large region of sand and salt, almost impossible to maneuver in, and one of the hottest places on Earth. Like Ritchie, he focused the 8th Army into three defensive boxes, sandwiched between the sea and the depression, with minefields in between, thus forcing Rommel to choose between either driving through one of these heavily defended boxes, attempting to find a path through the minefields, or turning south and attempting to navigate land that was possibly more hostile to him than the 8th Army. Whichever option he chose, it would buy the Allies time to ship more reinforcements and replacement equipment to Egypt from the UK to help hold the line and prevent Egypt and the Suez Canal from falling. The canal's importance only growing with the opening of the Asian and Pacific theatres of war, where Japan was now wrecking havoc. Hitler may have at times been disinterested in Africa, but to the Allied war effort, it was becoming an essential theatre of war. By now, the equipment situation on both sides was radically changing. The 8th Army was receiving newer, more modern equipment, especially in the field of tanks, thanks to the United States becoming embroiled in the war in December 1941. The boxy M3 Grant and the handsome M4 Sherman both brought with them a tremendous leap in firepower for the 8th Army's tank units, thanks to their 75mm guns which impressed even Rommel for their lethality against some of the older tanks he was still fielding. However, Rommel, who had now been promoted to the rank of Field Marshal as a reward for his success by Hitler, was also receiving small numbers of even deadlier tanks of his own with which to counter them, such as the Panzer IV, but perhaps most worryingly for the Allies, the awe-inspiring Tiger I. Fortress, with the Africa Corps as well with the Canadian Army's Ford trucks being especially prized by the German and Italian drivers. Compounding the logistics problem was the RAF's Desert Air Force, which was growing in both strength and confidence, and who took to strafing and bombing every German or Italian vehicle in sight, knowing their importance to Rommel. Nevertheless, at 300 hours on the morning of July 1st, 1941, Rommel's troops made contact with the 8th Army's new line. Attacking in the northern and southern sectors, Rommel knew that the 8th Army relied on cooperative defense between the three boxes, and so attempted to isolate them from each other. However, the plan quickly fell apart, as in the north, the German 90th Light Division became entangled with South African troops without the expected support from the 15th and 21st Panzer Divisions, these failing to meet their planned rendezvous point on time. Finally getting going, the two Panzer divisions then encountered exceptionally heavy resistance from the 18th Infantry Brigade, holding out long enough for the Commonwealth forces to reposition to the west to continue their defense. The next day, the 90th Light Division were able to continue their advance, only to again run afoul of the South Africans, who pounded them with artillery throughout much of the day. Meanwhile, Rommel's efforts to dislodge the troops positioned on the Ruaysat Ridge failed, largely thanks to the Desert Air Force striking his tanks with bombs and cannons. Over the coming week, Rommel probed the 8th Army for weaknesses, but the Allied troops were taking a heavy toll on his men and their tanks, 
while Auchinleck was reinforced by an additional Australian and two Indian divisions. Auchinleck now felt it was time to strike back, and on July 10th, he ordered the 9th Australian and 1st South African divisions to advance on German forces at Tel El Aysa and Tel El Makad, respectively. Supported by British tanks and aircraft, both divisions captured their objectives on July 12th and then fought tooth and nail against repeated German counterattacks over the coming days. These actions also allowed Auchinleck to strike out at Italian forces still fighting his troops on Ruissat Ridge on July 14th. Even with support from the 15th and 21st Panzer Divisions, the Italians were soon in retreat until additional German units counterattacked, stalling the British advance. By July 20th, the tempo of the battle had begun to wane as Rommel's supply problems gnawed away at his troops' effectiveness like a cancer. In contrast, with Alexandria less than 100 miles away, Auchinleck continued to receive fresh equipment and supplies to replace those expended already, and was able to build a 2 to 1 superiority in tank numbers. On July 21st, he ordered New Zealand and Indian troops to renew the fighting at Ruissat Ridge, their goal being to open a gap through which the 2nd and 23rd armoured brigades could strike outwards. The New Zealanders managed to reach their objective at El Mrir, but when their armoured support became delayed, German tanks counterattacked and they were overrun. The Indians, meanwhile, managed to secure the western end of the ridge, but were unable to advance any further, while to the north, the Australians renewed their efforts around Tel El Aysa and the Tel El Makkad on July 22nd. However, they too became bogged down in intense combat with the Germans. Undeterred, Auchinleck sensed an opportunity to strike a lethal blow against Rommel, and conceived of a plan dubbed Operation Manhood, which would see his forces strike out against Dier El Dib and El Wishka, with the goal of completely severing Rommel's supply lines. Launched on the night of July 26th, the plan was exceedingly complex, requiring several paths through minefields to be created in order to reach the objectives. Despite early promise, the plan very quickly collapsed, and recognizing the danger, Rommel organized a counterattack that succeeded in repelling Allied troops back to their lines. On July 31st, Auchinleck suspended offensive operations to focus on rebuilding and reinforcing his defensive line. Rommel, too, had no choice but to halt his offensives for the time being, his troops being exhausted and much of their equipment damaged and in need of repair or replacement. The first battle of El Alamein ended in stalemate, but won in favor of the Allies, for it at least succeeded in preventing Rommel from breaking through and taking the rest of North Africa. News of the successful repulsing of Rommel at El Alamein was met with sighs of relief back in London, rather than cries of jubilation. Rommel had not been defeated, only stalled, and the threat of his Africa Corps and Italian allies remained, as did the job of recapturing lost territory in Egypt. From the war rooms beneath the British capital, Prime Minister Churchill sent a flurry of telegrams to Auchinleck, insisting that he launch an offensive at once, lest Rommel regroup his men resupply them and attack again. But much to his frustration, Auchinleck responded with messages that said such an offensive was impossible, given that the 8th Army itself was exhausted from holding the line and needed time to prepare. For Churchill, 
pressure was mounting to achieve some victory in Egypt, as at that time, his government, along with the might of the United States, were preparing for Operation Torch, an invasion of Algeria and Morocco, then under the control of the collaborationist Vichy French. With Torch in the west and the 8th Army in the east, both Allied fronts could then close in on Rommel, dividing his already stretched forces and overwhelming him and Mussolini's troops, thus securing total victory in North Africa for the Allies. However, to Churchill, Auchinleck now appeared the weak link in his grand plan. In August 1942, Auchinleck learned that Churchill and the chief of the Imperial General Staff, Sir Alan Brooke, were to fly to Cairo to meet with him. Despite his successful defense of El Alamein, the situation he had created within the 8th Army was proving problematic. He had appointed a number of senior officers who would prove not only unsuited to their new roles, but also frequently butted heads with one another, leading to a breakdown of cohesion at the top level. Also, while having an excellent relationship with the Indian troops under his command, who he knew well, he found himself unable to relate to the British and Commonwealth troops, who were somewhat foreign to him undermining confidence in his abilities amongst the rank and file, who still viewed Rommel as a master of desert warfare. Churchill felt he had no choice and decided to relieve Auchinleck of his posts as Commander-in-Chief of Middle East Command and as Commander of the 8th Army. The former post was given to General Sir Harold Alexander, while Command of the 8th Army was given to Lieutenant General William Gott. Gott was a rather boisterous and aggressive commander, who came recommended by British politician Anthony Eden, who at that time was leader of the House of Commons and had previously served with Gott in World War I. Churchill now felt he had the right man for the job, but it was not to be. The transport plane carrying Gott to Cairo was shot down by German fighters en route, and even when its pilots made a crash landing, survivors inside the wreckage were machine-gunned, including Gott. Therefore, the job was passed to General Bernard Law Montgomery. Historians can debate who would have been the most competent commander between the two men, but what can't be denied is that Montgomery brought with him something that probably wouldn't be fully appreciated until later a character with which to counter the reputation Rommel had established. Indeed, one of the first tasks Monty, as he became known to his troops, set himself was to dispel the myth that Rommel was invincible, reminding them that they had stopped the Desert Fox, and it was now up to them to capitalize on their success. From the moment he took command on August 13th, the 8th Army found itself the subject of a whirlwind of activity as Monty reorganized, separating the mixed armored and infantry units into individual corps so they could focus on their own goals, as he dictated to them. Additionally, he moved his headquarters closer to the fighting and went to great lengths to increase cooperation with the RAF and Royal Navy. He also immediately began reinforcing the El Alamein line, with the deployment of divisions and artillery units that had initially been held back for the defense of Cairo. He backed this up with a rather symbolic ordering of any contingency plans for retreat to be destroyed. Either the 8th Army would be victorious, or Egypt would fall. On a personal level, he dropped the standard British Army officer's cap and replaced it with the distinctive black beret of the Armoured Corps, upon which were the badges of the Royal Tank Regiments and the British General Officer's Badge, and this, along with his high-energy speeches and confident, sometimes eccentric personality, completed the character of Monty to his men. 
Observers noted that within a week of him taking command, the atmosphere within the 8th Army had been completely transformed, and with it came new confidence. It was now time for this new, reinvigorated army to be tested in battle. By the end of August, Rommel was beginning to grasp the sheer scale of the predicament his success had created, as he found himself increasingly overextended. He had managed to secure 6,000 tons of fuel and 2,500 tons of ammunition in preparation for renewing his offensive against the 8th Army, but Allied naval might in the Mediterranean meant that only around 1,500 tons of fuel actually made it from Italy, the rest being sunk. Having less fuel than he accounted for meant that Rommel had to strike out earlier than he would have liked in order to try and quickly break the 8th Army's line and capture its vital fuel stocks before his own fuel tanks ran dry, and the Africa Corps was left to sit in the desert waiting to be bombed by British aircraft. Recognizing a weak point in the southern region of the 8th Army's line, Near the Katara Depression, Rommel sent the 90th Light Division and the 15th and 21st Panzer Divisions to attempt to break through it while the bulk of his force moved against the Northern Sector. Making his move on August 30th, the offensive immediately ran into difficulty when British aircraft spotted the Germans moving out, resulting in air attacks and artillery pummeling them all the way. Then, reaching the weaker southern region, the 90th and the Panzers found that Monty too had identified the weak points and instigated a major mining program, forcing them to stop and begin clearing a path, something made all the more difficult by the tanks of the Desert Rats firing down on their position. Nevertheless, the Germans broke through by noon the next day, and Rommel ordered his men to turn north and attack the British 22nd Armoured Brigade at Alam Halfa. The attack failed under British heavy fire, as did an attempt to outflank the British position. The advance had stalled, and Rommel didn't have the fuel to continue putting pressure on the line, and so he ordered his men to withdraw, the RAF's fighter bombers harassing them all the way back. On September 3rd, Monty ordered his battle-proven New Zealand troops to launch an offensive against the retreating Germans and Italians, but then ordered them back, fearing they would be encircled in a counter-offensive, and he needed every available soldier for the coming decisive battle he knew would determine the future of the Desert War. Having faced Rommel down and won, Monty would later write to his brother, saying, I have never before had to face up to a field marshal in battle and I thoroughly enjoyed it. One problem Monty inherited from Auchinleck, which he could do little about, was Churchill. Churchill continued pushing for the 8th Army to assault Rommel's position and break out of the El Alamein line, but Monty held firm until he felt he was ready, rebuffing Churchill's demands through September and into October while he built up his forces, trained them, gathered intelligence on the enemy, and engaged in a little bit of deception to throw off German intelligence efforts. Of course, the downside for Monty was that during this time, Rommel wasn't just sitting on his hands. Disappointed with his progress at Alam Halfa, he instead decided to adopt a strong defensive posture, hoping to inflict enough casualties on the 8th Army when they finally went on the offensive that he could then pursue the survivors eastward and take Cairo and the Suez. He was also hopeful that German forces fighting around Stalingrad in the Soviet Union would be victorious, allowing them to threaten British Persia and attack Monty from behind. 
To that end, he laid some half a million mines between his and Monty's troops, most of which were the anti-tank variety, hoping to grind down British armor and leave the infantry vulnerable to his own panzers. However, Rommel's problems were only growing in size. Allied air superiority meant that not only were his men constantly under attack, but Allied reconnaissance planes monitored everything he did, giving Monty a clear picture of his front line. Also, as well as Hitler's lack of support for him, he now found Mussolini was withholding support for his campaign in Egypt, keeping back fresh Italian troops and supplies deployed to Libya. Physically and mentally exhausted, Rommel was taken ill and had to be flown back to Germany for recuperation. Leaving behind his Africa Corps, he was faced with the realization that unless something changed dramatically regarding Berlin or the Soviet Union offensive succeeded soon, the campaign was in the long term unwinnable. Having detailed knowledge of German positions and defenses, and knowing Rommel was absent, Monty launched his offensive on the night of October 23rd, 1942, triggering the Second Battle of El Alamein. The darkness over the desert erupted in the flashes and roars of an intense bombardment by British artillery that lasted five hours. As well as softening up German defenses, it also provided cover for four infantry divisions supported by engineers to make their way out into the minefields, the men not weighing enough to trigger the anti-tank mines, allowing them to begin the dangerous task of clearing them. Additionally, a diversionary attack was launched to the south by the tanks of the Desert Rats, supported by free French troops, hoping to pull German tanks away from where the 8th Army actually intended to break out further north. With the engineers having cleared paths through the minefield, at 200 hours on October 24th, the British armoured divisions moved out. However, such was the volume of vehicles trying to squeeze through that traffic jams began to form leaving them vulnerable to German artillery if they were spotted at daylight. However, for the Germans, given all their troubles, it must have seemed as if Providence had sided against them, when just a few hours after the offensive began, their temporary commander, the man filling in for Rommel, Lieutenant General George Stoom, suffered a heart attack and died after being fired upon by Allied troops while inspecting the line. Replacing him was Major General Von Thoma, who had the unenviable task of attempting to counterattack the 8th Army. Deploying German and Italian armored units, the first major tank engagements of the battle took place later that day, but British tank and air superiority was overwhelming, and the German and Italian lines began to crumble under the sheer weight of the enemy force thrust against them. Despite still being unwell, Rommel couldn't leave his men when they needed him the most, and so quickly flew back to Egypt, raising their morale considerably. Fearing the collapse of the northern line, he repositioned the 21st Panzer and Italian divisions to support the 15th Panzer division fighting near a depression known as Kidney Ridge, where Monty was focusing his advance. The 15th had been reduced to barely 30 serviceable tanks, and so the situation was critical, but as the Germans repositioned, Monty then ordered his 1st and 10th armored divisions on October 28th to swing north behind Rommel's forces, hoping to cut them off and squeeze the life out of them. Despite being outnumbered 7 to 1, tank forces, along with anti-tank gunners, were able to hold their own against Allied Shermans and the various light and medium types, destroying them at an alarming rate. This prompted Monty to hold off further direct assaults and instead focus on artillery and air raids to whittle the panzers down. 
Rommel made numerous efforts to launch effective counterattacks, but he was increasingly forced to concede territory to Monty's troops. The situation, as November arrived, convinced him that the battle was lost, and he began formulating a retreat 50 miles west to Fuca. As if confirming this assessment, at 100 hours on November 2nd, Montgomery launched Operation Supercharge with the goal of forcing the battle into the open, where his numerical superiority would crush the field marshal's forces once and for all. Driving towards Tel El Akakir, the 2nd New Zealand Division and the 1st Armoured Division, supported by another intense artillery barrage, forced Rommel to commit his armoured reserves, his men losing a devastating 100 tanks in the process. This was the final nail in the coffin for Rommel, who communicated to Berlin his intention to retreat and regroup at Fuca, 50 miles to the west. However, the Führer, who had taken such little interest at times in Africa, now refused to let him give up an inch without a fight. Rommel tried to explain that he was down to fewer than 50 working tanks, while the 8th Army had several times that number and total air superiority, but the Führer wouldn't listen. Furthermore, Monty had now crushed 12 miles of Rommel's defensive line from the start of the battle, and he had no way of plugging such a large hole. Thus, not for the first time, Rommel disobeyed instructions from his superiors, only this time it was to retreat. Prioritizing his own men for the few trucks that were available, he left up to four divisions of Italians to be captured by Monty's advancing troops. Then, as the battle wound down, there came for Rommel the grim news of Allied landings in Morocco and Algeria, opening a second front in North Africa. By November 11th, the battle was over, and Egypt, including the Suez Canal, was secure. It was a significant victory for the Western Allies, and one that is often cited as the turning point in the war. Back in Britain, upon hearing of Monty's success, Prime Minister Churchill authorised the mass ringing of church bells, not heard for over two years, in celebration, and declared, Now this is not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end. But it is, perhaps, the end of the beginning. Monty immediately became a household name, with some labelling him as the greatest British general since Wellington at Waterloo. History, however, has proven rather unkind to both Monty and the Desert Fox. Some historians tend to focus more on their failings as leaders, particularly as the war went on, with both men suffering disasters under their command. Even Rommel's African Blitzkrieg has been reassessed with the passage of time, with historians now claiming he did very little that could be considered exceptional, and his success was more to do with British failings. Of all the participants in the battles leading up to, and including those for El Alamein, it is perhaps the Italian reputation that suffered the most, their armed forces proving totally unsuited for modern warfare. With the two allied armies closing in on the Germans and Italians, the Axis forces were squeezed out of Africa by May 13th, 1943. The Second Battle of El Alamein cost Montgomery 2,350 dead and nearly five times as many wounded, with a further 2,000 listed as missing and some 200 tanks destroyed. It cost Rommel almost exactly the same number of dead, nearly 5,500 wounded and over 30,000 captured. Perhaps most significantly, it included the almost complete destruction of his armoured force. In the end, Rommel had been proven correct when he said in 1937, 
that the winner of a battle would be the last man with one more round in his magazine. Ultimately, what defeated him more than anything else was the failure of his logistical chain to keep up with his needs, and so it was Monty who was left with said last round. And there you have the Battle of El Alamein, the turning point of World War II. Please leave a comment down below with your own thoughts and reactions, and remember to like this video and subscribe to support the channel. Thank you for watching, and I'll see you next time.